Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Sarah McDooling. I'm here today with my wonderful colleague, Shanu Prasad, and we are both super excited, very excited to be talking to Garth Nix about his brand new book, The Left-Handed Booksellers of London. Hi, Garth. Hello. It's good to be back virtually in Booktopia, if not actually. I know. (laughs) We missed missed seeing you in person this year, Um, and hopefully... You know, if you, we, we will be asking you about upcoming books later in the podcast, <laughs> yeah. but I, I'm hoping by the time the next book rolls around, we'll be back to. Me too. Sure. Me too. <laughs> Everybody, well, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. But first and foremost, um, would you like for the for the people listening, would you um, just do your intro um, <laughs> about left-handed booksellers, booksellers of London? Of London. Yeah. Well, I, I always feel perhaps I could just say the tagline and leave it at that, authorised to kill, and yeah. <laughs> it kind of says it all. Uh, of course, except it, does. it, it doesn't really at the same time. Um, the Left-Handed Booksellers of London is a fantasy thriller. It's set in a somewhat alternate 1983 in the United Kingdom, um, and it is the story of a, a young woman, Susan, who has never known her father, and just before she takes up uh, becoming an art student um, at the Slade in London, she decides to go earlier and follow up some clues that her somewhat absent-minded mother has about her father. Uh, Pursuing those clues, she soon comes in contact with the left-handed and the right-handed booksellers of London, who are essentially a secret society of magical booksellers whose job it is to keep the mythic entities of, of the old world under control and stop them uh, erupting and interfering into the contemporary world, the new world. And Susan's quest, if you like, to find her father uh, soon overlaps with some of the bookseller investigations and business as well. How's that for a quick, a quick intro? Uh, that was a great intro, and um, off the back of that intro leads us straight into our uh, next question, which is, so why 1983 and why London? Both very good questions, uh, <laughs> which I suppose the short answer would be instinct, which is not a very good answer, and I've got a much <laughs> more, I've got a much more complex answer. Um, one of the reasons, I mean, the, the initial spark for this book, I mean, there was kind of like a, an accumulation of, of imaginary fuel, as there always is over, over many years. But the actual spark for this book came when I was on tour for my book, Golden Hand, and I was in a Waterstones bookshop in Leith, the port of Edinburgh, and I noticed that the bookseller who was helping, with, helping me with the signing was left-handed. And I was a boy. Uh, I'm of the age where you weren't allowed to be left-handed at school. They forced you to write with your right hand. But I can still write with my left hand and I can draw and so on. Uh Um, So I've always kind of been interested. My oldest son is left-handed and some other members of my family are left-handed. So I just said to him, oh, you're you're left-handed. And he said, yes, I am. We all are. All the booksellers here are left-handed. And then he said, (laughs) and I think, you know, there's more left-handed people in bookshops than anywhere else. And I thought... Wow, that's interesting. And I said, I said to him, "So you, you know, you're the left-handed booksellers of Leith." And he said, "Yeah, I guess we are." And I thought, yeah, "There's a story in that." And um, I took that away, and uh, over some time, uh, you know, realised that I, I needed a sort of bigger canvas than, than Leith, which I don't know very well, uh, though I've been there several times. 
Um, and it sort of automatically became the left-handed booksellers of London because that's a much bigger canvas. And I know London much better uh, from many, many visits. And But my first and probably most significant visit was in 1983 uh, when I spent six months uh, in and out of London and got to know various corners of it. Um, so it seemed like a natural thing to, to, to make it 1983. Um, and, and that is where the instinct comes in. I'm not quite sure why I, I just went to that. I went to that year and I thought, but then I made it a slightly alternate 1983 because I wanted it to be more diverse and, and more uh, greater gender equality and so on. So it's, it does have a slightly alternate history. Um, so it's not, it's not 1983 as we actually knew it or can, can look at it. Uh, in the history, it's a, it's a little bit changed uh, for those reasons. Um, so that was that was why why it's 1983. But 1983 is also a significant year for me as a writer because that's also when I first decided I wanted to be a writer. Um, and when I was in the United Kingdom and travelling around, I it, it all all this connects back in. I assure you. Um, <laughs> I bought a beat-up Austin 1600, which had a gold flame stripe down the bonnet, which oh, made, wow. it go, made it go much faster. Yeah, of course. It was a terrible Everyone car. Everyone knows that. <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty awful car even back then. It was old even then. Um, the wheel literally fell off once <laughs> when I, was, I was driving along very slowly, luckily, just outside Oxford, and I saw a wheel roll past, and I thought, wow, someone's lost their wheel a second before my car lurched off the road. Um, and it caught fire once in Cornwall, um, luckily just a sort of oil slick fire underneath the bonnet. Um, so I, all I had to do was open the bonnet and let it burn off and then I could resume my place. <laughs> uh, this is what you do when you're 19. You think, oh, my car's on fire. I'll open the bonnet. Oh, oh, now it's out. I'll keep going. Um, <laughs> but the important part of that is that, in that on that trip, whilst driving around, uh, one of the things that I did was I read many of my childhood favourite books in the places they were set. So I read Swallows and Amazons in the Lake District and I read you know, Rosemary Sutcliffe's The Eagle of the Ninth on Hadrian's Wall. I read Dickens in London. Uh, I read Alan Garner's The Wits of Brisingerman in Cheshire. Oh, wow. uh, went looking for Fundendelve and so on on Alderley Edge. Um, so in a way it cemented uh, my love of those books uh, again, I suppose, and also my desire to write. And in a lot of ways, the left-handed booksellers of London, it's a, you know, it's a fantasy thriller. And it's a fantasy thriller where you have the old magical world, which is impinging on the contemporary world and the two mix and ordinary people are drawn into, or at least one ordinary person, or perhaps not so ordinary person is drawn into, uh, you know, into that magical world, which is just beneath our own, or it's always there, but it's not always present or seen by by ordinary people and really you know those some of my absolute favorite childhood books are like susan cooper's the dark is rising alan garner who i mentioned yep. uh, joy chant um nicholas stewart gray donna Wynne jones john aiken you know, there's tons of them um and in a way what i was trying to do in the left-handed booksellers of london is to capture that kind of sensibility but this time, I didn't write it as a children's novel, though, of course, I do write children's novels, and I could have, but for whatever reason, again, instinct, <laughs> who knows, my own peculiar uh, tendencies, I wanted to write it as 
as a as a fantasy thriller, which is it, it's a crossover book. It's young adult or adult, depending on how you want to look at it. It's published as YA in the United States. It's published mm-hmm. as adult in uh, you know, fantasy. I'm always wary of using the term adult fantasy because that can be misconstrued. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a whole lot of different. Yeah. It's just published as fantasy in, uh, in in the United Kingdom and and also here. Though here, of course, it also tends to to be in the YA shelves as well, just just because of mm-hmm. my publishing history. So all all of those things came together to to form Left Handed Booksellers of London. Plus, of course. Uh, my time as a bookseller myself in in Canberra with with Dalton's Bookshop, which, as it was, which now doesn't exist anymore, but was a, a very big and fantastic bookshop in uh, Garima Place in Canberra, where I worked with all my friends, and uh, it had a complete Penguin Bookshop, the only one I think in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, and a huge technical bookshop and a, and a you know really big tr- trade bookshop as well, and was a tremendous place to work and. No, it, it laid the foundation for my later you know, work in publishing as well. And I worked there with all my friends, so, you know, what's, 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 what's not to like? Um, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. I loved the details about the about book selling. I actually don't think I've ever read a book that made me feel so um, proud to be in the book selling business. Um, it, really, it really sort of brings out the magical side of, of being in this job. Um, and also, uh, there was a really hilarious, can, can I just call out to a really hilarious moment where the high tech, um, method of ordering stock in the eighties. Oh, that's real. Was, yeah. <laughs> is that really real? That's real. That's, yeah. That's, that's, but that's from the, the complete penguin bookshop in, in Canberra. We used to call through the ISBNs of the books we'd sold that day at the end of the day to Penguin in, in Melbourne and and then we would get them two or three days later and that was just beyond the best uh, yeah. because everything else took weeks and you'd have to fill out order forms and mail them or, or fax yeah, wow. them, um, you know, all, all of that stuff. It was a very a different world in, in, in many ways and uh, and actually just finding books was quite hard. I mean, you couldn't you could just looking up whether books existed at all. You know the micro, the microfilm, microfiche, you know books in mm-hmm. print. Uh, you had to learn to be quite good with that. And once you looked it up there, then you had to try and find out who actually might carry or distribute. You know that that publishes uh, books in Australia, and it was you know it's quite a quite a detective trail sometimes to try and find a book, even you know one that was very much in print, but you know, trying to locate it. And uh, and then to get it at a reasonable price was also quite difficult uh, back in those days. So well, it, um, it's funny because things have been definitely improved. I mean, you know, this morning we're redoing our reorders with a computer where we just you know type a number and press a button and it gets you know yes. electronically. But some of the things you talk about and just trying to f- track down <laughs> some books that you know are around, but you just for some reason aren't showing on your own you know your site or something. I, I feel like that's a that's a thing that a lot of book uh, people uh, can probably find. Yeah, well, still rings true. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, I think many things, many things still ring true. Many, a lot of the basics don't change. I mean, some of the technology for making yeah. it happen faster or more easily, uh, you know, they they're there, but the underlying tasks are all basically the same. The same. Um, yeah. As is you know, trying to um, you know, meet customer expectations and matching people to books, uh, trying to find 
you know, in a, in a physical bookshop in particular, you know, the book with the blue cover that was over there when I came last <laughs> year, uh, but I can't remember the name of the author or the title or what it was about. Um, and I'm pretty sure, but I'm pretty sure it was there on that shelf over there. Yeah. Or maybe it was that shelf over there. Um, and it's always amazing when you can. Or maybe green. <laughs> yeah. And it's amazing when you can work it out. It's actually yeah. often. It feels amazing, doesn't it? You're like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's a, the, there's a bunch of things in there. I mean, uh, you know, Merlin selling. Merlin, who's a left-handed bookseller, who's one of the main characters, him selling the Ashley Book of Knots um, is, is, <laughs> yeah. is drawn from this thing, you know, at Dalton's where, we had this incredibly expensive hardcover of the Ashley Book of Knots and we had a competition to try and sell it uh, between the, the weeks, weekday staff and the weekend staff because yep. it was so hard to sell because it was so expensive and so <laughs> specialised. I think it was uh, I think it was $120 at the time. And did you sell it, Carl? No, I did not sell it. <laughs> I didn't, but one of the weekend staff did and we used to communicate by writing notes to, you know, to the between the shifts uh, on strips of paper which were torn off packaging basically and they used to be thin strips of paper which were then placed between the hands of a plastic dragon which was actually a prize that I'd won <laughs> another competition that we had um, and so you would come in the morning and then the dragon sat on top of the cash register and we came in one morning and the dragon had a short epic poem about selling the Ashley Book of Knots uh, held in his little plastic claws and uh, yes, one of the, you know, one of the weekend staff. Uh, <laughs> uh, actually, she's an artist and uh, and uh, an, an author herself now, Jenny Higgy. Um, she'd sold it on the weekend, and then wrote and she wrote a poem about it. Wow! So, which I think gives you a kind of idea of the sort of bookshop it, it was. It was. Yeah. Um, yeah so. Um, <laughs> was a lot Speaking of, of um, oh, poems, yes, you start each chapter um, of the book with a with a little poem can can you tell us a bit about that they're very different styles of poems and um well they're that, a joy uh to uh, in, to relish going through the book well i'm glad i'm glad you like them i mean they 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 do vary uh enormously what they're they're meant to be uh, what they are are poems written by the booksellers uh because particularly the the, the left and the right-handed booksellers all write poetry um as a as a de-stressing thing and also a centering um, thing that they do, particularly the left-handed booksellers who quite often have to do uh, quite violent or uh, distasteful things. And one of their uh, one of the ways of dealing with it, just like uh, everybody else, is to is to read, but also to to write poetry. So uh, the little epigraphs, the little poems at the beginning of every chapter, are different booksellers poems uh you know written either for their own for their own entertainment or uh uh you know sometime but also for that sort of therapeutic purposes which I, I i do believe in i think it's uh it is very therapeutic to to write particularly uh you know poetry i think where you can express and sort of get out emotion and and not not very many words, and it's quite a good way sometimes mm. to to uh, to try and get something out of your system, and and it can also be a good way to communicate that to to other people as well. Um, so yeah, I, one there's of my, uh, my <laughs> as booksellers, you you might. Oh please! <laughs> this is from chapter ten. The most humble bookman of yore held authors in considerable <laughs> awe, yes. but it was all just an act. For as a matter of fact. 
he hated every writer he saw. <laughs> that one did make me laugh out loud, actually. <laughs> well, we've all met a few people like that, you know, in, in, in publishing in general, I, uh, I think. And you're just like, why are you in this industry? You yeah, don't seem to like anyone. Well, <laughs> yeah, publishing would be great if it wasn't for the authors. Authors, authors, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're very few. They're actually, they're very rare. And, in fact, I think uh, perhaps a, a, vanishing, a vanishing breed too, I suspect, actually. I think so. Yeah, I found that very funny, but um, I think our, our experience with authors has just been that everyone's lovely. Like, um, well, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, that's come <laughs> on, you know. Well, maybe the unpleasant ones don't come in and visit us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't know them. We only know the nice people. That's a good way to put it. It makes our job great. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, did you write the poems before, like, with the, how, how did you write the poems? Did you write them as you were writing the, the narrative of the story or did you have them afterwards or before? Most of them, yeah, most of them I wrote actually just during, whilst writing the narrative. So I would, I would pause at the end of a chapter and then write, uh, write a poem before I then started the next chapter, with a few exceptions where I, I just left it blank because I... I wasn't finding the right voice or sure. or it just wasn't working. And then I went back and, and, and filled it in later, as it were. Uh, also a technique that sometimes happens with the narrative. Uh, <laughs> you know, insert sequence here about blah, blah, yeah. uh, <laughs> every now and again. And I also replaced a couple, went right at the end where I'd... Uh, I'd finished the manuscript and I'd, I'd revised it several times and it was about to go off. I uh, I replaced a couple of poems which I thought were a bit substandard. So, uh -huh. you know, that's just uh, part of part of the overall process of and trying to make it trying to make it all work and make it as good mm. as it can be before it, before it goes off to off to editors and so on. Well, this world that you've created um, for this book is just. I, I relished every moment here. I really, I loved it. I love um, the whole, I love that it, it seems like the 1983 that you've created is as interesting and charming and magical a place as the kind of the old world side of it. Um, and I just, I wanted to ask for the benefit of the people listening, could you give a little rundown on the difference between the left-handed and right-handed and even-handed booksellers? Sure. Yeah. And could you also let us know which one you would be? <laughs> That's an interesting <laughs> question. Well, the left, the left hand. I mean, the, the booksellers as a whole are a part of an, a very extended clan who who have the surname Saint Jacques, um, though actually that's not it's not actually their names. It's something that Queen Elizabeth I thought was their was their family name. Um, really so they're <laughs> they're all they're all the Saint Jacques. Um, but it's a very open family. Um, it's, it's as one of the characters, it's a bit like the, the church. You, you marry out, but you have to guarantee that your children will be will be raised as as booksellers. Um, so it's not a closed sort of clan where uh, or a sort of incestuous where you have to inherit. Um, it, uh, it it brings you know, lots of people in, and it's just that the children have to uh, be dedicated to the cause, as it were. Um, which, of course, would have its own problems and something I don't address in this story, but I, I might elsewhere. Um, so the left-handed booksellers are the field agents, 
as it were, uh, and they their the magical properties that they have from their their left hand uh, generally to do with 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 fighting and and dexterity and movement and so on. It's all quite physical. Um, you know, they're they're kind of enhanced people in in many ways, and they are the field agents who do all the dashing around and and fighting and physically dealing with things and so on. Um, the right-handed are the sort of controllers and researchers, but they do also have their own uh, magical abilities. They can employ uh, magic in a kind of sorcerous way, I guess. They can exert power over the, the environment around them and, and over people's minds and so on. Um, and then the even-handed booksellers actually have both powers. Uh, they, they can, they're a mixture of both, but they're, they're very few and far between. Uh, all of them can change. You can be a left-handed bookseller who becomes right-handed and vice versa. Uh, you might become even-handed or, or you might not. Um, in terms of myself, I think perhaps in my younger days, I might have been a left-handed bookseller, <laughs> late, my late teens and early 20s, uh, when I was, you know, sort of foolish and active. Um, <laughs> I think I would then have become a right-handed bookseller and of course, I would like to think of myself eventually becoming an even-handed bookseller, uh, but I suspect actually I'd be—I'm I'm much more of a right-handed bookseller type uh, in 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 person, uh, someone who likes to stay in the bookshop, uh, <laughs> delving delving into the books, and uh, as as well as actually doing you know selling books as well, which in fact I do love uh, selling books and uh, also conducting my own researches and following my own intellectual hobby horses and <laughs> I feel the same actually I feel like I admire the left-handed booksellers and a part of me would want to be one but I think I'd enjoy life more as a right-handed bookseller <laughs> you might you might live longer too yeah <laughs> yeah going to say it kind of reminded me of the difference of um, between you know Merlin and his sister Vivian yes. which is dovetails into what I wanted to talk about go. which is the characters yeah <laughs> I'm a, I'm half in love with Merlin. I have to say, I think I'm. I think Merlin is a very attractive character. I think <laughs> it, would be, it would be very hard not to fall in love with with Merlin, but it would probably be very wise not to. <laughs> depending on who you depending on who you are, of course, and yeah. what you what you expected what you expected from the relationship. I think. Now you sound like Vivian. Exactly. Well, <laughs> yes, Vivian Vivian would give that advice. Yes, and does. Yes. Mm. Now she is the right-handed bookseller and not the yes. left-handed bookseller that she was before. So. Yes, and her eyes are very open regarding her sibling. <laughs> so would you say um, Susan, as a 19-year-old as a heading to London um, and falling in with booksellers, is sort of perhaps based quite a bit on you? Uh, well, it's always hard to tell. I mean, I think all the characters yeah. have some element of me because that, yeah. you can't help but do that. Um, I think she's a lot more together than I ever was, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, she seems like for an art student, she's very practical. <laughs> like, oh, oh, so unflappable. I loved it. I don't know if that's unflappable. I think that's the, that's the better word, yeah. Well, and a I lot was, of artists are, though, I think. Yeah. I think You're artists, you, yes, but I, I don't know. There's art students I know. <laughs> okay. My, well, my, young, my younger brother was an art student and my mother taught at the school, Canberra School oh, so of Art. Um, your experience has been with I'm actually, like yeah. well, I think art, artists who often the ones involved in more technical 
branches of art are extraordinarily practical. So print printmakers and so on. Um, not not always, of course. I mean that's a gross generalisation. Um, but I certainly do know artists who are enormously practical and can just do stuff. And and part of the things that they they do, of course, are you know uh, is their art. But often that extends into everything else as well. Um, of course, at the other end, they're completely dreamy ones who can do their art and almost nothing else. <laughs> but Susan is not one of those. She's not that kind of artist. Yeah. <laughs> she was my favourite character um, of, I, I mean, I, I also obviously love Merlin and I definitely love Vivian, but I, I just, I don't know, there was something about the character of Susan that she just, the way that she just approached what was happening to her was just felt, it felt quite real to me. Like, you know, sometimes you read um, fantasy novels where a, a character gets dropped into another world and they either take it in such a blasé way that you just like, do you not know that something crazy is happening here? Or they, go or they so freak out for like, chapters and chapters yeah, like, and it's really annoying. <laughs> Whereas Susan, I felt, had this great balance of realising that something crazy was going on, but she doesn't lose her head over it. Well, she has to She has to deal with it. Um, yeah, I must admit, I've never, I never liked the freaking out for chapters. No. Because, because you can't, what, what purpose does that serve? I mean, just, just as a person uh, constantly freaking out about a situation you can't change. Uh, but it can only try and make the best of, I've always thought, is kind of annoying actually in real life as it is in, uh, <laughs> exactly. uh, if, it, if it just keeps on continuing. I mean, it's perfectly reasonable to begin with. Uh, but if if it's not actually going to have a positive effect, then I always think, well, it's time, time, to, time, time to move on. Yeah, get it together, character. <laughs> At least, you know, ideally. We want to know more about what's happening in the plot, <laughs> which is what we got, which was great. Carry, carry us along with the story, yes. Exactly, yeah. exactly. There was some um, a wonderful reference in the book to um, how bothersome children's authors can be in terms of unlocking the old world. Could you talk about that a bit? Because I loved that so much. Well, yes, that's when um, Merlin and Susan are uh, going through the new bookshop, which sells old, old and collectible books, um, and Susan notices uh, many of her favourite children's books um, which are which are, you know they have collectible first editions of uh, you know many many wonderful children's books, all of which are favourites of mine, of of course. Um, I mean, can I shall I read that little section? Would oh, oh I would love that. Yes, that section was right. um, every it. every author mentioned was either a favourite of mine or someone I immediately added to my um, oh, good, list of authors to check out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's few. not that many novels where you also get. Um, where you also get a wonderful reading, reading list. <laughs> yeah. after I, 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 it's fantastic. I, I hope so. All right, here we go. Next to the rear door, there was a very large glass-fronted bookcase where the books were not in rows but face out on stands. Susan stopped as she recognised childhood favourites, made much easier because many of these were of a later era than those on the other shelves and did have dust jackets. There was John Maysfield's The Box of Delights, and the C.S. Lewis Narnia books, and Patricia Lynch's The Turf Cutter's Donkey, The Winter of Enchantment by Victoria Walker, Black Hearts and Battersea by Joan Aiken, several of Rosemary Sutcliffe's historical novels, including Susan's favourite, The Silver Branch, Power of Three by Dinah Wynne-Jones, The Weirdson of Brisingerman by Alan Garner, Five Children of It by E. Nesbitt, and many others. Most were editions she knew from the library, but in much better shape. The dust jackets kept pristine under protective clear wrappers. Children's writers, said Merlin, 
dangerous bunch. They cause us a lot of trouble. How? asked Susan. They don't do it on purpose, said Merlin. He opened the door. But quite often they discover the key to raise some ancient myth or release something that should have stayed imprisoned, and they share that knowledge via their writing. Stories aren't always merely stories, you know. Come on. Ah, I loved that moment. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I loved getting some of my favourite books in there. I could have made this three oh, pages. Oh, so long, good! It would have been too many. Too many books. <laughs> you got three pages of just favourite books. Yeah. Yeah, three. Well, maybe I should do it as a supplement online. I was going to say absolutely. I think I, it would actually, be yes. Very interesting. And a playlist too, because there's some great <laughs> musical reference references uh, well, in here. Um, again, there's some there's some uh, you know real drawing on my actual memories of 1983 because um, you know, the reference to Moonlight Shadow being constant <laughs> on the radio is actually something every, everywhere I drove. And, of course, back in those days, as here in Australia, you know, you'd drive out of range of one radio station, yep. you have to retune to another one. And everywhere I went in the United Kingdom, it, Moonlight, I'd, Moonlight Shadow would have just played or be finishing or halfway through I'd lose that radio station. I'd keep driving on. I'd find a new radio station, and oh look, it's Moonlight Shadow. Uh, <laughs> All over again. Uh, as such a, I have such a <laughs> of just constantly finding Moonlight Shadow. As years earlier, being uh, with my family, driving from Canberra to Northern Queensland, where the song was Fernando by oh, Abba, like every. every <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> I think we had like eight. We had eight hours of Fernando a day from different, you know. <laughs> Dozens of different radio stations because it was just on constant play. So, but that that doesn't happen anymore, of course. But uh, I think that's a very uh, a very nineteen eighty sort of moment. Although I had a very it was great all of those. With a oh, with, really? with a car, yeah, with a car that um, when I got a hire car in LA and I didn't realize it had a CD player because it was hidden, so I just had the radio. And um, it was, uh, well, I mean, it was, you know, a few years ago, but it was like, I think the killers, uh, Mr. Brightside and <laughs> for a whole week, uh, a week, a week and a bit. That's pretty much the only song I heard when I turned the radio on, no matter what radio station I turned it on to. And then I came up with the CD player. So that was, that was. Do you, do, do, you, uh, do you still like the song? No, I didn't really like the song to start with. So. <laughs> well, I, I did like Moonlight Shadow and I then stopped liking it and right. I couldn't listen to it. Again now? Yeah, I couldn't listen to it for years and years and years. Yeah. But when I was actually writing uh, the left-handed booksellers of London, I thought, oh, I'll listen to it again. I thought, oh, I can listen to it again. So I, it's only taken 35 30, years. Yeah, okay, uh, well, I've got a little like bit of time left. Uh, Great. Give it some time, Shani. <laughs> you know. If the left-handed booksellers of London gets adapted, I would like it to be the theme song. Sure. Yeah, uh, when Merlin's singing, like really, oh, that was one of my favourite scenes. Sorry, just, this is nothing at all what we're talking about. But um, when they, when Merlin and Susan and um, Vivian focusing uh, their minds, are focusing their minds, yes. and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I was picturing in my head of like this, you know, badly tuned, out of tune, like uh, song, and then a droning, um, a droning voice, like a lecture, and then shouting happening, and. <laughs> I was it just I was again laughing out loud. It was I mean even though it was it was like quite tense. I was also funny. So, oh, good. Well, that's, I, I that's I, that. I, I like <laughs> to do that. Tense but funny is a good yes. combo, I think. Yeah, it's a pretty yeah. good uh, way to describe the book, really, because it is the action and tension is constant, like pretty much from the get go. Um, and then, but it's also 
so many great funny moments and and charming things going on. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Which which brings me to the question. Um, I had heard everything that I'd heard about this book is that it's standalone, but I just wanted to ask because I enjoyed being in this world so much, and though this is a complete story, when it ends, I just can't help wanting to know what happens next with these characters. It, Will it's, you? <laughs> it's like all, my, like all my novels and stories. There's really no such thing as a standalone. I envisage them. <laughs> I envisage them as standalones, but they all feel as if they could be part of more. And yeah. I may well, I may well do. I've always got notes for, for more everything, really. And I, I have notes and a title for another another book in this world. So uh, who, who knows? I mean, my next book uh, due out, hopefully this time next year, though I, I'm somewhat behind at the moment, is another Old Kingdom book. It's uh, yes. called Tercial and Eleanor, which is about Sabriel's parents. Uh, her father, of course, is Tercial. Yep. And her mother is Eleanor. Um, so uh, th that's underway at the moment and, and all being well uh, will be out you know, roughly this time next year. I'm, I can't wait for that. I've been looking forward to that one for ages. As I looked forward to the left-handed booksellers of London the first time I ever heard that title. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Me, but I think, I, was also, I, I think you were waiting two years. I was only waiting one year. So I guess I... Well, I think... I think the book, you know, Booktopia podcast is one of the very first places I ever even mentioned the left-handed booksellers of London. Wow! So there you go. So they, it just, they, just made the waiting longer. So yeah, I'm not sometimes, helpful, yeah. Sometimes I don't know that it's helpful knowing <laughs> what's coming. But up. you know, there aren't many books that could withstand such a like a prolonged um, tease. Yeah. <laughs> and and live up to it, which this. And so having looked forward to it yeah. for years and being so intrigued by the title and the what the snippets we heard about what the story was about I can confidently say it was even better than I could have imagined it was just right. such fun very good and I definitely would love if you do decide to revisit because it feels like that was great episode one where's, where's <laughs> episode two I think that's what happens isn't it? if you create such amazing worlds then that feel um so full and real then it makes it it that's why we want more so, um, you know, because we can see, I mean, I could totally, I, I could, I would love to hear like, yeah, stories about what happens to those characters next, stories about what happens to any other character you've mentioned even briefly. Like, I love the sound, like Audrey was sounds like amazing, the cab driver. Sure. What about yeah. Cousin yeah. Sam? She seemed to have something going on. I want to know more about her. <laughs> we all have our, uh, our secondary characters that we're, um, that we're like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll know more, we'll know more. But um, I guess I guess the uh, I know we're kind of heading towards the end of our time together because we just got prompted to tell us that. But um, the <laughs> thing that I really wanted to ask you about was um, the fashion in this book. Oh. To me, was extremely prominent and amazing. And um, uh, did you draw on? I mean, obviously, you know, <laughs> a lot of this stuff is very unnatural. But things that you I just have to know things you were wearing yourself. Do you have a boiler suit? <laughs> yeah. I, do. I, did, I, I, in fact, did have a boiler suit. Um, I had one of my father's CSIRO boiler suits. Oh, wow. Um, but I have to be completely honest and say that I was never brave enough to just wear it out, like to, you know, go drinking or whatever. I used to, <laughs> I used to wear it to, to do what it was actually designed for, like, you know, you know physical work. work you know. Um <laughs> Uh, when I was in various, uh, various you know, earth-moving jobs and things like that or chipping bricks and stuff like that. Um, 
but uh, and in fact, almost none of Merlin's clothes I could get away. I I couldn't get away with them then. I certainly couldn't get away with them now. Uh, I just like the idea of it. I mean, it's the sort of thing where um, I would never. I would never. I'm very very boring in my clothes and so on. But I am interested in them, uh, and I just think they help. They help create a character. So. I'm, I'm always interested in what my characters wear, whether it's in, uh, in a, high, a high fantasy world like the Old Kingdom and there's details of their armour and so on, or, or it's in, in this 1980s uh, world where, of course, uh, there's all kinds of interesting fashion going on uh, you know, with the, the sort of late, late almost post-punk stuff that yeah. was still, still punk was still around and, and so on. All, all that sort of thing is just part of building building the reality of the characters, but also uh, is an expression, I guess, of my interest in small details. Uh, I think small details are very important to build up the illusion of reality and uh, clothes, clothes are part of that, uh, along with lots of other, lots of other things. I did love a lot of the mentions of um, Merlin, you know, when he and Susan are both drenched, um, and Susan feels that she looks terrible from it and mentions that Merlin just somehow makes it, it look fashionable. But, but <laughs> we all know someone like that, don't we? Yep. Yes. <laughs> we all know at least one person like that who just always looks brilliant no matter what. And, <laughs> and they could be rolled in garbage and come up and look yep. fantastic. And, and it just look purposeful. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, and Merlin is one of those, is just one of those people. And I think I think my favourite outfit of his was when um, he was um, after, well when something happens to him and he's wearing the the O'Shanter and the um, and the ribbons uh, crisscrossing his and don't forget the bag always <laughs> always oh, yes the tie dyed yak hair bag yak hair bag yes. yeah. very important and that was there from the very beginning that was uh, that was one of the the, the very first things that was always yep. there. I actually Googled to see because I couldn't visualize it and I wanted to um <laughs> Did you I find wanted one? to get a, a strong yeah, I got some int- I Googled a few things throughout the book because I wasn't um I wasn't familiar with the professionals and I wanted to get the full funniness of um the gender of the, Yeah, and so I Googled that as well and fell down a little bit of a rabbit hole watching little I love love that show but it was even for its time it was very sexist Um, but I you know it still was a really it was a really great uh, action show Um, but when I wrote when I wrote that part about gender swapping so Bodie and Doyle are both women I thought wow this would be great someone should make this I mean set in the 80s but that kind of alternate 80s where with two tough women who are the professionals and and so on and uh, and their boss is also a woman uh, I, I was thinking, yeah, someone should do this. So I, I guess a lot of things like that in, in the book are me just thinking, hey, wouldn't this be great? Be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would have been great back then, um, but also it would still be great now. So uh, who, you know, who knows? Who knows? Well, um, unfortunately, I believe we sadly are out of time. So we might have to wrap things up. But Garth, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. It's been a delight. It's a pleasure as always. I'm always very happy to come and talk about books. <laughs> and podcast listeners, you can get yourself a copy of the Left-Handed Booksellers of London, as well as any one or all of Garth's amazing backlist 
at your local bookshop or online at Booktopia. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au. Thank you.